BPM. I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change and your podcast app. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, everyone. It's Kidada. This is Seizing Freedom, the show where we dig into the archives to bring you stories about how African Americans freed themselves during the Civil War and built new lives during Reconstruction, and where we talk to the historians and artists who know the archives best. On this episode, I speak with historian Hilary Green, author of Educational Reconstruction. We talk about her family and the knowledge they passed down to her, as well as the creative ways African-Americans seized their education, how they led the charge for public school systems in the South, and why remembering the past matters today. So my name is Hillary Green. I'm an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. And I'm the author of Educational Reconstruction um, that explored African-American public schools in the urban South after the Civil War. So what got you interested in studying the Civil War? This is easy. Family porches. So my mother's family is from outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and they were historically free people of color. My father's family is from the Gullah Sea Islands, and they were enslaved during the Civil War. And I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and then the South Shore of Boston. So family vacations, family stories on those porches, and being able to connect the free people of color on my mother's side of the family, the slave side of my dad's side of the family, and someone from Massachusetts who was indoctrinated with the Massachusetts 54th and 55th Regiments. So <laughs> Civil War became a way to connect my entire family history and get a sense of myself. Do you remember a specific story that kind of stood out to you at the time? Yes, this is coming from my grandparents' um, house. That was a gathering space for us. And every year we'd go to Gettysburg. And every year we come back, I would hear from my grandmother or grandfather, someone, well, you know, there was the stolen ones and people were stolen. These men came in, they stole African-Americans, they were enslaved, but we were never enslaved. We were never taken, we hid. But Lee and the Confederate Army stole people. But my aunts and the older Black women in the community always told a story of the Black community that was never in the textbook. So we would be working at the church or on the porch, and they would just start sharing information. So in the end, we had these informal historians among women. And then on my dad's side of the family, again, it's the porches. That's how I learned about the civil rights movement past, some of the slave past, and what it was like for them growing up in Jim Crow. So again, it's these informal spaces, usually in a backyard, a porch, a church, anytime that we were there around family, the story started to be told. However, as a kid, we were expected to listen, 
and we were to hear. We weren't allowed to share. We weren't allowed to ask questions because children were to be seen and not heard. And I heard that from both my mother's side of the family, my dad's side of the family too. So what do you think they were trying to instill in you all in terms of telling the stories they told you all? I think this is one of the things that you're trying to say is that the history books we were getting were wrong. They had a lot of silences. They were based on a lot of stereotypes. And that wasn't their history. And trying to connect the local and family history to identity formation and parenting. And so these histories were parenting strategies as a community, but also individually to tell us that we had a history. We came from something. It wasn't always great, but they survived. And that's one of the things I got from both of them, both sides of family, surviving, how to survive, how to learn from the past, those who survived previously. And in many ways, that kind of spilled into my first book and continue projects. It's these informal stories that were tell like, you exist, your history matters, what you have in your classroom is not always what you learn and is accurate or truthful or inclusive. And it's that combination of formal and informal spaces that I think is the most crucial part about this. What I find really fascinating is how much of their story continued to be passed down. Did your father's side of the family pass down the history the same way your mother's side of the family passed it down? Did they hold on to the same kind of knowledge? No, they didn't. And one of the things that came clear, my mother's side of the family were free people of color. So they really talked about the before the Civil War, how they were always farmers, they were rural, they were from that place, and how the Civil War affected them. My father's side of the family, because they came from slavery, and this is when McLeod Plantation still had people living in those slave cabins. I had to pass that every single time we would go to see relatives because that, that was the main turnoff. So when you see people living in these cabins, they tended to focus on the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, and how they survived in immense poverty on James Island, South Carolina, John's Island. So they were like, no, we came from this, but here's the past that mattered. And this is where I think the stories that were told, the way the Civil War affected everyone and the way history impacted it really came across what stories were passed down to us, but also too why I started to really go to the Civil War. Because I had, okay, what's the pre-war? What's the post-war? What's this pivot point that led to these different types of stories? Right. And it makes sense, you know, that one side of the family, especially the side that comes directly out of slavery, would have a different kind of memory and understanding of the past. And there would be stories they wouldn't necessarily pass on. But I think it's really interesting that at this point, at least when at the time you're born or you're coming of age, families are telling these stories less, but we know that a century earlier, some of them were still telling them. Yeah. And this is one of the things I find fascinating. I didn't know as a kid, they were starting writing down those oral histories and putting them in books. And a volume that came out, the earliest memory I heard about the stolen ones, I was about three years old. They had assembled because of the series Roots. They created a volume where doing these oral histories. On my dad's side of the family, they weren't doing that same documentary impulse. And so the stories became less salient, especially when you add in Jim Crow, the great migration that affected some of the family members that continued poverty, but also race and 
just that's what I really got from them, that the Civil War was there, but it was the continued aftermath, the continued violences. And I think I was too young at the time for them to tell those type of stories. But as I got older, what's sad is most of those people who knew those stories are no longer alive. So they haven't passed it down to me. And now I'm part of this genealogy family history telling those stories because I was young enough to remember and hear those stories. So how that passes using that generational divide and also the loss of those stories are coming clear. But earlier, they would have been so involved. They would have been in everyday life. And they themselves were living history. So they would have made sure that their children and the children of their communities knew their experience and understand what life was like without slavery and how to mobilize that moment because they knew what slavery was. They knew what the Civil War did. And I also think that they knew and made a point to make sure their children and grandchildren knew for that period of time, which is a testament to their understanding of the importance of that sort of first education or the first school being the one of your family, the one of your immediate community, not necessarily the institution you go to for formal learning. Yeah. And then it gets cemented and you will go to school. You will do your best. We don't care if you're an A student or B student, but as long as you give 110%. And that came from both sides of the family. They would not allow us to slack off on education. Like, no, you're going to get every single bit of education you can do. Plus, you have us on the side, but we're going to make sure you're there. So that surveillance and that police and to make sure that we were good students, that we took education seriously and those social economic benefits that came from education, too. And I see that generational divide, like, here's some formal stories, here's that thing, but you will go to school. (laughs) You will do this work. With some states passing laws that prohibit free and enslaved African-Americans from gaining literacy, and with some enslavers forbidding it, it could be dangerous to seek an education. And yet we know African-Americans knew the value of literacy and tried to get it wherever they could. Why were they willing to embark on such such a risky endeavor, and how did they do it? One of the things I find interesting is that African-Americans are in the background. And the way they talk about acquiring an education, they they talk about the same language they would do to liberate themselves physically from slavery. They stole an education, like they would steal themselves <laughs> to liberate out. And they learn quite quickly around them, especially if there are children holding the books of their white peers at that point as their playmates. They learned there's something in those books. There's something there. And it's a liberation of a mind that they can actually write and forge passes for themselves, for families. But quite early, they learn by not knowing how to read and write that that's one of those things that keep them in bondage. And so they would steal their education anytime there. They would hire and give extra food and whatever supplies they had to anyone who knew how to read and write and operate these illegal schools. So like the church, they're operating these illegal classrooms and schools because they knew the value. And Frederick Douglass said it best, knowledge is power. And you hear that consistently by formerly enslaved people. 
What kinds of educations about the world, about Black life, about the U.S., do we know that African-Americans born during this period might have been receiving at home from their parents and grandparents? One of the things you get a lot of is family genealogy and family history. Who are the parents, their grandparents, who are their community members, and especially for those who came from Africa and so had ties that, what was those experiences like on the boats coming over? What were those early experiences? And what was life like in Africa? So from that oral tradition on these porches that they were learned, it wasn't in classrooms, but also the naming conventions that they would give their children. And to remember, you come from greatness, you have this family. And then being able to write down in the family Bible write down that genealogy and continue on that family history is something that you get from the communities themselves and their parents themselves. The other value they get is learn as much, they would say learn as much book learning as possible, buying those books, making sure they have those supplies. But they understood the value of both, not that one was better than the other, that you needed both together to survive. And they're building on that with the coming of freedom, acquiring access to literacy, acquiring access to a wider world of knowledge, and even the formal history. So they've got their family histories, and then they'd get the formal histories of the U.S., of the world, in the broader world. Exactly. And so the other textbooks that you will see are Black newspapers. Being able to read and understand the news of Black newspapers, which I find the world is in there too, because the first page or either one of the last pages is world history. So they know what's going on in Europe. They know what's going on in America. And they also know what's going on in their community. So they really see these as other textbooks in themselves plus the formal blue black speller that they'll always talk about in their normal classroom materials. It's all about access to knowledge, their place in the world and how they can be actors of change and being able to make a difference rather than being things subjected to them. And speaking of that, given the realities of anti-blackness in the world and what their parents are trying to instill in them, this knowledge is power in terms of their own survival, their own progress as a people, which contradicts a lot of the popular understandings of um, this sort of white narrative that Black people only want to be in physical proximity to white people. And African-Americans during this period make clear that that's not necessarily what they want. They want access to the same resources and access to the same rights and privileges, but not necessarily enjoying them in the exact same space. Exactly. And for school and they are to protect their children at all costs. They do. Then this is one of the things I love about this period. Children can be children. They can actually go to school and not to work. And parents are shielding themselves from the violences that they will encounter as adults. But they're like, take this time to learn, to be a child, to play. And then when you come of age, you can then come into these things. So you see a separation that wasn't even there under slavery. And that's one of the things I also see coming in why these parents and community members are fighting. They're fighting for their children to have access to what every other people would have but they're also building with communities by Black people for Black people. And, but they're gonna have equal resources for everyone else. They will never be subpar.
Today, more people are trying to understand and amplify African-American history, especially that history that's missing from the mainstream school curriculum. And we know that education was segregated for a long period of time. Can you tell us what Black school children were learning in Black schools coming out of the Civil War? This is one of the things I find fascinating. Their education level kind of mirrored what I had as a student in Massachusetts. They were reading, writing, geography, history. They're not getting a simplified education at all. And one of the things I find that's added is stuff like hygiene, how to sew, because they have to make clothes. They have to be able to do those practical things. But the fact that they're doing full-on geometry and algebra, especially those higher grades and not just the primer ones, I just thought like kindergarten, those, those little books, those reading books, and they kept on getting advanced, advanced, advanced. And by the end, they were really in high school type curriculum. And that I find very fascinating because how it's been written, we know schools were created, but we assume that they were substandard. They weren't getting um, empowering curriculum. And it was automatically manual education because of the Jim Crow era narratives to overturn. So when you look at those curriculum guides that are in the state boards of education, the city uh, superintendent reports, and then also the Freeman schools you realize they got a high quality of education that was more of a liberal arts curriculum. And when you go side by side with a New England school, school in the Midwest, you find very little difference between race and the place of the South and what Black children were learning. And as you said, that goes completely against what we think we know they're getting. So I'm wondering, could you give us any specific examples, you know, what you would see in terms of geometry or history? So one of the things of history that they are definitely learning is more of a Black history. And this is where having a white New England school woman in the classroom matters versus a Black woman from New England or New Jersey who comes out to teach. Because white women and men who were teaching in those Southern schools right out in the Freedmen's Bureau, they will teach the textbook. And whatever's in the textbook, even though it's coming from Boston, the Bible Tract Society, that's what they're getting. Black teachers, though, especially like Charlotte Fortin Grimke and others, they are talking about Africa and colonial understands of Africa. They're talking about Christmas addicts and the revolution. They are talking about African-American heroes and sheroes that came before is alongside of this. So they're going at more the early Black history movement that we think about Courage G. Woodson and those type of kids' books. But they are reading about Africa was a great continent. It had this, we came from great people. So they're adding more. And this is where that geography lessons come in, how they are able to locate (laughs) places on the world. And then that curriculum would expand because school children made newspapers. So they are coming up with their first newspaper. So they're coming up with the contents and you can see them applying and seeing themselves in the news. So they are very attuned to political events and children are debating whether or not they should support Grant in the election, Garfield in the election. They are really engaged with politics at a young age and they're writing about it in their classes. They're doing their theme papers on this. And that's because the teachers that they have. And the high quality that they are engaged and they see education, politics, and economic success as linked. And they have a voice to say something, not just the adults over them. 
I think that's really important, but I'm wondering if you could square that kind of education that they're receiving from some of their Black teachers with some of their Black teachers, especially from the North, their discomfort with, you know, I'm thinking about like some of Charlotte Fortin's, her journals, some of her discomfort with being there in the South and what she's seen. Yeah, and you do see that with especially like for she's not in the city. If she was in the city, I think she would have been happier <laughs> than anything else. Because this is where regionalism and class and for them, this is their first time in very rural areas and having to come to grips with that. So their placement in these rural communities that are isolated from social life that they know, they have to be in tune with the community and learn to break down the language dialect differences and everything else. So one of the things I find is that isolation affects how long a Black teacher or a white teacher remains in the field. And those who are dedicated, like a Maria Waterbury, a white woman who teaches for over 10 years in Mobile, Alabama, she comes back every year to teach. Because she saw an investment in the community, was able to put away their discomfort in being isolated and ostracized by the white community because it was hard. And she saw really her role as part of this larger mission. But other teachers didn't stay that long. But the ones who do, the ones who go from the Freedmen schools, their first public schools, and some of them die while teaching. They're the ones who are the persistent ones who were able to overcome that discomfort. But for all the teachers, you see that first couple of weeks of discomfort, lack of housing, lack of food. <laughs> no one knows them because they don't trust them. <laughs> and then over time, they build that trust. They build those relationships and then it starts to ease off and they persist. But one of the things that allows them to persist are their students and their scholastic success and their ability to learn and the capacity to learn that defies stereotypes. I think that's really important because I think sometimes what can happen is that we can see in the primary sources one thing, but what you're sort of highlighting is that we capture, for example, Charlotte Fortinet, one moment where she may have been particularly isolated and vulnerable, and then... What you're showing us is that there's a much longer and larger history where she and other teachers may have grown more comfortable, but that didn't stop them from being able to give a high-quality education to their students. It's really important for people to hear today about their full complexity, their full humanity, the understanding that people had at the time of their potential and what they were willing to invest in it and then what the kids got out of it themselves and then the work they went on to do. Because a lot of them, you know, they come up through the schools and they go on to do these great things. While Maddie Jackson was held in bondage, She fought for control over her own labor. And as a free woman, we know she sought education as a means of having control over her mind and her means to freedom. But that contrasted with some white Northern missionaries' vision of education as a means to control newly freed people and to remake the South in the image of the North. So how did African-Americans resist some of the efforts to control their quest for education? 
And this is where I think is very interesting. One of the ways they did it was move. They actually would leave the schools and they would move and find a school and a teacher that was more attuned to them. So they just didn't stay in a school and because that was the only option. And you see in the case of a lot of school districts, especially in large cities that have many northern associations in them, during winter, one school might charge money for fuel. They would leave for that year because they're like, I'm not paying money. The same thing with the quality of teacher. They're like, you know what? They're not really attuned to us and our needs. You know, there's this other person over here. Let us leave. <laughs> and it's this constant debate in the reports, of the fluctuations. And you can tell which schools they're going to when you look at the teachers and the reports. You're like, oh, they're going to the Black teacher over here in the AME school or in this church that they went to. And then during the spring months when they don't have to pay for coal anymore, they're going over here. So this is where their flexibility and their willingness and the use of their feet to determine what education they wanted. The other way they do this is a lot of them will supplement by becoming tutors. They will hire tutors to also train them in what they wanted, especially on the issues of the day with voting. Night schools, night schools led in churches by Black teachers become another source of education. So we don't have individuals just in one school or staying there the whole time. They are moving and thinking about what is best for me, what is best for my child. And they did not put up with teachers who only wanted them to be menial laborers. They would have left that school and that teacher would have been gone because no one would attend their school. <laughs> so you have that. And that subtleness and those acts are so important. And you find those. You find those in the reports. You also find those in the unclassified letters of all the organizations. Because they will write to New York and Boston saying, this teacher is not a good teacher. They are racist. They are <laughs> And we're not sending our child there. And that, I think, is important. And Maddie Jackson's really key on that issue. And I think that it speaks to their understanding of what they want and what they need. And they're not suffering too much foolishness around their children, around their future and that of their children. And I think even with that, you see a lot of parallels today with parents who are, particularly African-American parents, who will move their children in and out of schools because they run into some of these problems in terms of the quality of the building, the quality of the instruction, or even some of the things in terms of the teachers. Yeah, and you see that with the Black homeschool movement. I see that as a modern-day parallel because in this moment, People are looking at education to job and successful job, not just a menial one. Today, that classroom to prison pipeline and people saying like, nope, we're not. I'm not having my son in this school where they're getting abused and disciplined every day. They either find another school or they take them out altogether and are willing to homeschool. You see that too earlier and they're using private schools and tutors instead until they find something that's amenable for them and their families, but also their children's education and future. So we kind of talked a little bit about this earlier, about the fact that education isn't just about formal instruction. It's about knowledge. And I think you, you speak to that when you discuss the fact that they're learning geometry, geography, history, including, you know, Black history, 
which affirms some of the suspicions that I've had about that generation of people who come of age in the turn of the 20th century, like Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, and even like the generation after, like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, they're learning something about themselves, about who they were and are as a people, where they came from, their potential. And it's informing their work and their activism and their view of the world. And so what I'm hearing from you is that, like, I've suspected that they're receiving that education. And I feel like what I'm hearing from you is that they absolutely are. Yeah, and it's definitely there, especially when you look at Emancipation Day celebrations and Memorial Days. And who's always there? School children. School children are every single event. They are performing songs. And one of the things I think about, especially someone like uh, Carter G. Woodson, who would write about how he heard from the veteran, Civil War veterans around him and people who were enslaved and people in Pennsylvania um, on the border with Maryland also talking about that. This informal spaces, these segregated spaces of church, school, but home were just as important in learning. And it's also reinforcing one another. They're getting the same messages over and over about empowerment. And it's that empowerment in a world where race matters and their humanity is not always recognized and is legible, but also their life, too, is not always recognized as legitimate. Having those tools and language to equip themselves emotionally, economically, socially, I think is important that you can see why we have at the turn of the century a whole generation that seems bold and defiant. Well, they got that from the previous generation who was telling them that they were great. They came from great people, that they come from a people with a history that matters and it was empowering. And look what they did less than 50 years after slavery, where they are now. And that transformation and having access to that, I think, shape generations in ways we don't think about. That you can have a Carrie Woodson, you can have the son of Rosa Dixon Bowser, for instance, becomes this prominent medical physician, but also helps with anti-lynching campaigns. These people are coming of age because they're hearing from these communities and they're reinforcing the schools taught by members of their communities. I think that's really important because what you see is that there is this really fierce pursuit of an education because they understand not just that it matters, but how it matters in terms of something more than just bare survival. Yeah, that's what I think is too. It was never about just them. It was always the community because the community invested in the individual child. And that investment and also that guilt I'm sorry, I would not want to be a child at this time period with the guilt of everyone in my community expecting me to be great and not living up to their ideals and expectations. But they really saw every person's investment in the future for everyone. And it makes sense because you know that you wouldn't have something like a new Negro movement in Renaissance. You wouldn't have something like a civil rights movement if you didn't already have several generations of that kind of work. I look at the growth of Black education as part of the original civil rights movement. And when I think it's telling that we're talking about a third reconstruction and education's number there, you see the second reconstruction of the civil rights movement, education's there. 
This is the first. This is the true first civil rights movement where we think about in which education and the desire to become educated is a non-negotiable term of freedom. Do we know when and why some African-Americans' collective memory of their history and roles in the war faded? Yes, this is one of the things I really see. Once United Daughters of the Confederacy and the school boards take over and they start to determine what the textbooks are. And so if you're in a school district that is very much understanding the role of textbooks and what can be there. So you're talking about the late 1870s, 1880s. Those textbooks that are in the superintendent report are like very much white standard, let's erase that empowered message that would have been in the Freedmen Bureau schools of um, abolitionist, former abolitionist textbooks. But in the 1890s, with the rewriting of constitutions up until the early 20th century, you see this conscious effort to make sure that the textbooks written by the United Daughters of the Confederacy are the main textbooks. And so it leads to some creativity by Black teachers who have already been empowered with these stories, but the creation of the Association for Negro Life and History, or what we now know as ASALA, encouraged you Woodson to have the Negro Bulletin, the um, Journal of Negro History, and then the Advent Negro History Week to bring back in Black history. And that would be the only time that would legitimately be there in the schools. All other times is subversive resistance by Black teachers. And this is where the community aspect really takes hold. Because in the schools, it's being faded, but in their communities, they're getting these outside messages, these oral traditions, these other spaces, segregated libraries. They're using those spaces to empower, but it's not in the schools anymore. And then when you get to desegregation, the firing of Black teachers and just white teachers in the classroom who don't know Black history. That's where those textbooks, the lack of teachers who understand, but also to a generation of children don't want to learn that history. <laughs> and I will say that I was one of those kids who loved it, but my brothers hated it. Like they were like, why are we listening to this old history? I'd rather be out here playing this. And so it just with time you have that because those living monuments aren't there. So now you're talking about their children, their grandchildren and distance. And the schools are no longer reinforcing that message that was once there. And so you have to imagine that the passing of the generation of veterans would play a role in muting the memory and things like the great migrations out of the Mm -hmm. South would create greater distance between the people and the memory of that specific history. So you can get a sense that it might still be there, but it might not be as loud or it might not, the volume might not be Mm -hmm. as high going into the middle or the late part of the 20th century. Yeah, especially this is where the Great Migration, we can't discount that. That was a major shift in in terms of African-American collective memory, but also the institutions built by Black people to sustain that memory. Cemeteries, schools, churches, streets, neighborhoods start to get erased. So instead, it goes to radio and other new things. The Black newspapers are still there in columns and in February and then occasionally Black History Month. But that passing that generation, the demographic shift of the Great Migration decimated what I would think in Richmond because most of them left. <laughs> they left. So who's there to remind the children of the next generation there if you're no longer present in the city? 
and what gets lost in there and how it goes to other places beyond the South. And then how those audiences and conflicted memories between a Northern memory versus a Southern memory, and that conflicts who gets to tell the story. Is it appropriate? All that starts to come in and fade. So it then goes down to family genealogists, people who are maintaining will sustain those oral traditions because they see it as a form of erasure on a different level because of new realities. And they are adapting, but they also see in many ways that what was there is being lost and they're trying to stem the tide, but they ultimately will not be able to fully capture what was there once that generation's gone and once the Great Migration um, demographic shifts have happened. There's a poem I love that I think speaks to this moment, and it's Lucille Clifton's I Am Accused of Tending to the Past. I am accused of tending to the past as if I made it, as if I sculpted it with my own hands. I did not. This past was waiting for me when I came. A monstrous, unnamed baby, and I, with my mother's itch, took it to breast and named it history. She is more human now, learning languages every day, remembering faces, names, and dates. When she is strong enough to travel on her own, beware. She will. For a long time, African Americans tending to the past covered everything but the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is surprising given what you've told us about how important it was and how important African Americans remembered and understood it was. So what happened? I think they internalize that period. And how do you survive a trauma of African-Americans being free, having rights, being able to shape society and the violences of the overturning of it? And one of the things I see, especially with tends to the past, we, we're human. We don't want to deal with the traumas and have to engage with those traumas. So those who are able to be bold and brave and to remember is more than those who are, it's easy to forget. It's easy to put away. It's easy to keep it unspoken. So I look here to, and some of the people who are doing it are Black women who are teachers. As the preservers of memory, the shapers of memory, they are persistent because they see the harm in those silences. So for me, I love that that poem because it says a lot about not just forgetting, but who chooses to remember. And having remembrance and having the remembrance of Reconstruction, Civil War, the USCT soldiers and their contributions, but also the schools that came out, the name and practice of the schools afterwards, is because they refused to re- forget the sacrifices that made it possible. One of the things I find interesting is why we just how Black education shaped larger education. Black vision for education gets enshrined in those first constitutions after the Civil War. We wouldn't have public schools as we know it in these places. And the fact that that is a Black vision of the future, but yet our current narrative say that Black people don't value education shows to the power to shift in all of that reason and why this history is not being taught. 
Because what does it mean? The greatest lie that people have been told over years is grounded in the lost cause and fabrications and outright mistruths. When you include this history by asking where are Reconstruction education, where is this moment? How did people seize the freedom? We realize how much of American history is built on lies and what needs to be told and how it's taught matters. And I agree absolutely because you would imagine that if people understood this history of how committed African Americans were to education, how much violence they endured or their institutions experienced because of that, then you have a better understanding of the world. And as you said, the lies that have been told about Black people not valuing education, which is always a lie, because I think even like in a school district like Detroit, it's very clear that parents really care about their children's education. And not only that, too, you brought the big thing, the violence. Every time a school is burned down, it is rebuilt by the money pulled together by the Black community. So if they're giving money to a schoolhouse or a church that serves as a schoolhouse, what impact that has on community wealth and sustainable wealth? Because they're putting it in institutions. So those violence is directed to teachers, to institutions. This is a vision in which Black people lost money on in order to make for a larger future. And there's so much impact connected to this moment and some of those legacies that we're still reckoning with. But one thing that hasn't gone away is the value of education. So do you have a sense of what might happen now that we're starting to remember Black people's roles in this era, in the Civil War and Reconstruction? One of the things I can tell you we're having a problem with is having students not shut down when we talk about violence. So um, at the University of Alabama, I always teach one of the Ku Klux Klan herons of a former educator in Tuscaloosa who's run out of town. He's in Mississippi. And he talks about a near lynching. And he talks about what happened. My students read the passage. They see the names from some of the buildings and the communities and street names. And they're like, what do we do with this? And so how do we talk about the violences, even around education, that they seem like that should be a given? And it's not. And it's those everyday acts of violence and those just acts that it's hard not to get it shut down. So following people, following those who were there, following the institutions created. And I had to come away with creative ways to teach problem history. And this is why I love teaching tolerance. I love these other things to help to engage because this is an era that's so filled with violence. I had to get my students to remember, like, it's not all violence. People still got married. They still did other things. So the violence can shut down everything. But then how do you get them to remember all the other acts that people are doing? And so photography of schools, photography of children, those early report cards, what they're doing. I have to remind people of life despite the violence. And the fact that they are still in the process of making freedom and sustaining freedom, even with this. And the other thing is, one of the things my students always get struck by, they are still hopeful. They're not pessimistic about the future. They, they maintain this hope. I'm like, how do they maintain this hope? If they are being able to maintain this hope and figure out as they're making freedom, making progress, what are they really going back to? It's slavery, what they survived. They're like, it's not that bad. 
there's a better future going forward. So they're seeing themselves now forward in the hope that they express on the everyday level. That persists a lot more. Why does how African-Americans remember the Civil War and Reconstruction matter today? I think why it matters today is we're still dealing with the legacies of its erasure and its absence. Because with, if anything that this summer has shown with um, George Floyd, but also January 6th, there are people who really believe the UDC narratives as justification for white power in the present. And African-Americans are having to grapple with and quickly educate themselves on this long history that they were not taught to fight against the modern-day manifestations of it. I've always had to explain, like, no, people did this. No, there was always education. (laughs) And having to educate because the school systems continue to not tell the true area. So when they're responding and need education to respond politically, they can't. So to remember Reconstruction Civil War means to remember a period and then what happened to its destruction and how to stop that in the present. Memory can be a form of erasure. So what do you think we lose as a country when we misremember? When we misremember, we miss remember the people who are the true democratic people living up to the American ideal. Those who did not accept what was happening to them, but fought back, that pushed governments to hear them, to recognize their dignity and humanity, but also were resilient enough to survive, to persist, and to rise above their expectations above them. And I think they provide us a model for our nation in a way that the current heroes don't do. And if we know their stories, we can understand our future and our present in many ways and how it's not the leaders that matter. It's the men and women who just wanted to survive because they felt they, they mattered. And it's not just adults. This is where children come in. It's all generations. And those are the stories we need. And we need them in a time now, especially we need new models for how do we persist in the present. This is a good time to look at the Reconstruction era, post-war era, and see how those individuals persisted. And our erasure of that history and those memories and while the tools that they equipped themselves to persist will help us persist in the present. Hillary Green is the author of Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890. She is an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. Her upcoming book examines how everyday African-Americans remembered and commemorated the Civil War. You can read some of her work at Muster, the blog for the Journal of the Civil War Era, which she also edits. It's a great resource that you can find at journalofthecivilwarera.org slash muster. Next time on Seizing Freedom. When they went round singing, steal away to Jesus, that meant there was going to be a religious meeting that night. Our future is sure. 
God has marked it out with his own finger. Here, we have lived, suffered, fought, bled, and many have fled. We will not leave the graves of our fathers. But here we will rear our children. Here we will rear our children. We will be exalted. Seizing Freedom is a production of VPM and Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is researched and hosted by me, Kadata Williams. It's produced by Lushik Waba, Joshua Moore, and Ronald Young Jr. Our theme song and music was composed by Dan Burns. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. I Am Accused of Tending to the Past by Lucille Clifton is read by Camille Stanley. Editing comes from Kelly Jones, Gavin Wright, and Camille Stanley. Our executive producer is Ed Ayers. Steve Humble is VPM's Chief Content Officer. You can find links to archival resources and more information about this series at SeizingFreedom.com. You can listen to ad-free new episodes of Seizing Freedom only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcher.com premium, select a monthly plan, and enter the code FREEDOM. VPM. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.